0: Listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured
1: podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured, episode 236. In this episode, we are talking about what the heck is going on with the supply chain and what does it mean for workers, with Shermaine Chua. But before we begin, we just wanted to announce quickly that on December 16th, we are hosting another very special Belaboured live event. We will be discussing Striketober, the so-called Great Resignation, and what it all says about the late pandemic labor movement. We will be joined by two special guests, Sam Lewis of Strike Wave and Rebecca Given of Rutgers. To learn more about the event and to RSVP, go to our show page at DescentMagazine.org, and we will have a link at the bottom of the page. And now, the News.
0: The big scary news this week has been of yet another COVID variant, the Omicron variant, because that's not ominous enough, popping up around the world and potentially maybe vaccine resistant. Because of that, this first news story today takes on an extra importance. Nurses unions from around the world are taking action to demand access to vaccines for everyone because they know that as long as there are places in the world that are mostly unvaccinated, new variants like this one will breed and they will not stay where they began. I spoke with Varsha Gandikota Nalutla of Progressive International and Nurse Zeni Cortez of National Nurses United about this action.
2: Hi, Sarah. uh, Hi, everyone listening. My name is Varsha Gandikota Nalutla. I uh, lead the policy work at uh, Progressive International and have been working on uh, COVID-19 vaccine internationalism for the last year.
0: Yeah. So tell us about this legal action being coordinated by Progressive
2: International and nurses unions from around the world. Sure. So this week, 2.5 million nurses from about 28 different countries, coordinated by the Global Nurses United, the Union Federation, and the Progressive International, essentially called for a UN investigation. Into the distribution of COVID 19 vaccines. I know a lot of people may be thinking, you know, but we know the problem, right? There's too many of us, too few vaccines, what's to investigate? And the first is, of course, that this is artificial scarcity. We know that we can produce enough vaccines for the whole world in just one year, if if only the recipes, if only the technology weren't kept secret. And there is a proposal that would enable us to do this, which is a patent waiver, a temporary patent waiver proposal introduced by India and South Africa at the World Trade Organization that's been now in discussions and deliberations for well over a year with absolutely no uh, consensus. And there doesn't seem to be any progress moving forward towards the decision making. So this complaint is against uh, the EU and all of its member states, the UK, Norway, Switzerland and Singapore, all of the countries that have been steadfastly opposing this waiver, even though it's received the support of well over 164 countries at the World Trade Organization. So our specific demand is for the UN Special Rapporteur to conduct a fact-finding mission. To the World Trade Organization. We're actually speaking, as I'm sure you're well aware, Sarah, you know, during a week that marks the 20th anniversary of the historic protests in Seattle where tens of thousands of protesters, this was at the very beginning of when World Trade Organization was being set up, right? Um, and, and the protests about it being essentially anti-democratic. So now if you look at the situation, it's extremely similar, which is that how is it that in an unprecedented global pandemic, a handful of nations have been allowed to hold discussions hostage where there's been no progress at all? So as things stand today, citizens in wealthy countries, you know, in the UK, in the US, are already onto their boosters, and fewer than 7% in low-income countries have even had their first shot. And so a simple question that anyone in such an investigation would ask is, why is it that the WTO is so steadfastly sticking to its consensus-based decision-making? Because it is possible, according to the laws, that they can move to a voting procedure, where, of course, this waiver would win because it has such overwhelming support, especially from countries in the global south. But this hasn't happened, and there hasn't been any movement on that. We also need to look at kind of the other aspect of this, which is COVAX, which is what's touted as, you know, the solution for poorer countries. So every time anybody has raised the demand of an intellectual property protection waiver on vaccines, the response is, oh, we don't need to do that because there's COVAX, this entire infrastructure that's been set up by Bill Gates, that's really going to get the vaccines to poorer countries. And this is simply untrue, right? COVAX has contributed less than 5% of all of the vaccines that have been administered globally. And it had this ambitious target of 2 billion or something like that for 2021. And it came out and said, you know, we're definitely going to miss that. And it's not just about it kind of having failed, but there's atrocious kind of procedural flaws for example, in late June alone, I think, COVAX had sent something like 500,000 doses to Britain, which is more than double the amount sent that month to the entire continent of Africa. So for us now, as we launch this complaint, you know, the Global Nurses United and the Progressive International, what for us, what's extremely important is to say what we're witnessing isn't simply you know, an inefficiency in our system, a failure of our politics. It's not about, it's not a technocratic debate. It is, in no uncertain terms, essentially a crime against us all, right? It is a violation of our right to health. And that's why it's important for us to kind of reclaim universal human rights, the WTO, the WHO, and international law, because these governments, these COVID-19 criminals, as we're calling them, are essentially acting with lawlessness. Right. Right. And so, yeah, tell us a
0: little bit more about um, the conversations and the organizing to make this complaint come about among all of these global nurses unions.
2: So one thing to note, I think there's been a lot of talk about how nurses have been on the front lines, you know, they they're the heroes, the unsung heroes of this pandemic and have really, uh, you know, been fighting this battle on the front lines, whereas us activists are doing this other kind of work fighting, um, you know, corporate lobbies elsewhere. The truth is that nurses have been fighting both battles. At The very beginning of this year, I think in March last year, Global Nurses United, you know, partners in this effort, were one of the first few organizations to say TRIPS waiver is what the world needs write to the WTO uh, director general and say, we as nurses back this effort. So first is, you know, this impetus has always existed. Nurses have been fighting both battles, both the actual disease on the front lines, as well as how how is the question of how is it that they can stand up, not just for their fellow healthcare workers, but for other people, uh, and especially you know, doctors and nurses, their counterparts in the global South were suffering as a result of these kind of imperialist policies. So at Progressive International, which is a coalition of left-wing political parties, social movements and unions, we believe that, you know, planetary problems like this deserve planetary solutions. And so we're really keen on transnational organizing and asking the question of how is it that we can have coordinated action between left-wing social movements and unions across borders such that the machine can be brought to a halt. Yeah um and so what are the next steps
0: I guess for this action and how can people keep up with this process
2: The immediate next step is we're running a campaign called 100,000 for the frontline which is we're going to submit an addendum at the end of this year, one month after this initial complaint to say the nurses have made their demands very clear. They've provided their testimony. Now there's 100,000 of us standing in support of them. So anyone that's listening can go to COVID19criminals.exposed um, and look at kind of the entire complaint, add their name. So we want to build this out into a transnational legal action that moves you know, with the nurses' unions as leaders, but with the support of everyone that cares about the cause of um, vaccine equity in the long run i think there are a few different pathways we're interested in partnering with media organizations to essentially do kind of a coordinated investigation that can provide the direction for the WTO mission that we're asking for. We know, again, because of fantastic efforts by investigative bureaus in different countries, that specific governments in the global south have had absolutely harrowing experiences working with COVAX, working with Bill Gates, working with the WTO on this. I think it's important to bring all of that out as a coordinated story rather than as one off, you know, um, kind of cracks in the system that have affected certain countries. So that would be an important, uh, an important next step, but we're looking for a response from the UN Special Rapporteur on, um, on how quickly this mission can be undertaken.
0: That was Varsha Gandhikota Nalutla of Progressive International. And next, I spoke with Nurse Zeni Cortez, who is President of National Nurses United and a nurse at Kaiser Permanente South San Francisco Medical Center.
3: Hi, good afternoon, good evening, or good morning, depending on what part of the world you are in. My name is Zeni Triunfo-Cortez. I'm a registered nurse for over four decades, and I'm president of National Nurses United.
0: So you are currently, you're a nurse in California, um, but talk about the effects on what you see every day going to work on, you know, the global population not having access to the vaccine
3: here in in California and perhaps uh, most of the states, mm-hmm. we have and have had access to the vaccines and and then with with the boosters, right? But then, as travel from all over the world opened up the borders have opened up. We're very concerned because there's still about 45 percent of the world's population that does not have access to a vaccine. And so with that, it causes a lot of concern because they can very well bring in the virus um, and, you know, uh, transmit the virus to the immunosuppressed and our elderly and, you know, our, 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 sick patients and the, the young ones as well, children as well. Mm-hmm. And then it just makes it so obvious that more needs to be done with the surfacing of this new variant, uh, Omicron variant. And, and it's very concerning once again because, um, we don't know much about it,
4: mm-hmm.
3: just like the variant, but, we need to be careful. We we need to um, do something about it because um, none of us is safe until all of us are safe. And we, we need to um, give the low-income and middle-income um, countries, you know, the ability to have access to vaccines because right now uh, the high-income countries have procured about 7 billion vaccine doses, Mm -hmm. while the poorer countries have only been able to procure approximately 300 million doses. Mm. And that's a huge parity. And again, that's a big concern for all of us.
0: Yeah. How has it been for you to be in touch with nurses in countries that don't have the kind of vaccine access that we do here?
3: Well, it really breaks my heart first of all um we we don't have to go far we have put in this country you know where um people have had difficulty accessing the vaccine Mm -hmm. but i think we're we're uh, we're doing something about it but then to learn that some of our colleagues from the poorer countries are dying because Mm -hmm. they themselves do not have access to vaccine, and yet they need to be there for their patients, right? you know? And, and it's, it's really heartbreaking that it has to come to this. And all of the deaths that have happened, a lot of those could have been prevented.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and it's got to be, I mean, we first spoke early, early on in the pandemic about all of the things that you didn't have access to as hospital nurses in the early days. And so it's got to just be incredibly frustrating to be here going on two years into this thing and still looking at the things that, that healthcare workers don't have access to because, well, because capitalism, frankly.
3: Um, yes, that's true. If, only we did the right thing at the very beginning. Um, I don't know if this is part of the conversation we had, but at the beginning when we heard from our colleagues from, um, you know, the Asian countries that Mm -hmm. there is this virus that's happening, we immediately um, uh, contacted or sent a letter to the World Health Organization we sent a letter to the White House saying that we need to do something about this. Mm-hmm. We sent a letter to Centers for Disease Control. You know, uh, there needs to be something done about this. And yet it fell on deaf ears. Then fast forward, you know, to a couple months after, the virus is now becoming a pandemic, and yet we were not prepared. We did not have the optimal, you know, personal protective equipment that we needed. Mm-hmm. And even for that time, uh, the CDC told us uh, a, a bandana would, would be good enough to protect ourselves, mm-hmm. and nurses were getting in trouble when when they used masks to, pro- to protect mm-hmm. themselves from pic- who have been um, tested positive. And and so it's it's really um, frustrating. And a lot of our nurses are burnt out. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of us are physically tired, emotionally tired, and morally distressed because we know what we need. We know... How to do the right thing, and yet we can't because of the situation and and so you know we we it's it's hard it's really difficult
0: yeah it's it's really frustrating from the outside, I'm sure it's even more so when you're just like, this is making my job harder every single day um, I think it's been so clarifying in the last year and a half to just see like the thing that we need to do to actually fight this thing is to make sure everybody gets care. It's sort of the most obvious explanation of why we need to provide truly universal healthcare. And at this point, truly globally universal healthcare because literally when people are not getting access to the vaccine, it is going to affect all of us.
3: Yes, that's very true. Uh, very true statement, because again, we have countries where, you know, people do not even have access to a simple healthcare if, if they're infected by the virus. And so we, people will die and it's, Not right. It's inhumane and more needs to be done. You know, it's one thing that we provide supplies of vaccines to the poorer countries, Mm -hmm. but we should not rely on charity alone. Mm
2: -hmm. We should,
3: we should let um, these poorer countries manufacture their own vaccines Mm -hmm. because we cannot supply it fast enough. Mm -hmm. They need to do their own production.
0: That was Zeni Cortez of National Nurses United and
1: before her, Varsha Gandikota Nalutla of Progressive International. You may have a dress code at work, but does that mean your boss gets to dictate everything you wear or even ban you from wearing certain slogans or symbols? A worker's right to express themselves by wearing protest insignia is at the heart of a complaint that was just issued by National Labor Relations Board prosecutors out of the Seattle regional office. It's a case brought by workers at Fred Meyer and QFC supermarkets who had been banned from wearing Black Lives Matter themed face masks and buttons at work in 2020. When the buttons and face masks were banned at these grocery stores, the workers instead tried to wear their union's Black Lives Matter buttons, which also displayed the UFCW logo, since they're represented by United Food and Commercial Workers. When those were banned, too, the workers rejected the company's proposed alternative, black and white bracelets, that said, not Black Lives Matter, but standing together. USCW Local 21 then filed an unfair labor practice complaint against the grocery store's parent company, Kroger, arguing that it had, quote, violated the law by, one, failing to bargain with the union over a change in workplace conditions, in this case the practice of allowing the wearing of buttons at work, and two, prohibiting workers from taking action together, in this case by wearing Black Lives Matter messages, to protest racism in the workplace and in society generally. The clash over wearing Black Lives Matter logos echoes a similar conflict at Starbucks, which eventually prompted the company to reverse its policy of banning baristas from wearing apparel displaying the phrase Black Lives Matter. Another similar case involving Home Depot workers and Black Lives Matter apparel is also being litigated at the National Labor Relations Board. According to UFCW, the union is seeking a settlement with Kroger that would probably involve a policy change on regulations on workers' apparel. The union has also called on Kroger to, quote, do a better job of hiring and promoting African-Americans at every level of the company and making it clear that it will not tolerate racism from customers or employees, unquote. When the regional division of the NLRB issued a finding that Kroger had violated the law a few weeks ago, Motoko Kusanagi, an employee at the University Village QFC in Seattle, said in a press release, quote, We wore the pins because it seemed like the right thing to do. My coworkers showed me their pins happily, letting me know they stood in solidarity with me and my family. One of the core values of the store is inclusion, so we did not think Black Lives Matter was a radical statement for this business. The amount of pushback we received for such a small showing of support still sits wrong with me to this day. I'm glad we could fight back, unquote. The issue of banning buttons underscores one of the longstanding problems baked into our system of labor laws. You basically check some of your constitutional rights at the door when you step into your workplace. Hopefully the NLRB will see the light on this one issue involving a movement that touches the lives of so many workers. It's
0: official, RWDSU will get another crack at unionizing Amazon workers in Bessemer, Alabama, after the regional director of the National Labor Relations Board Atlanta region has ordered a new election. Specifically, the director, Lisa Y. Henderson, wrote that Amazon, quote, gave a strong impression that it controlled the process, end quote, by installing a postal service box on its premises and adorning it with vote no signs within apparent view of surveillance cameras. Quote, this dangerous and improper message to employees destroys trust in the board's processes and in the credibility of the election results, Henderson wrote. I specifically disapproved of the employer's suggestions for making voting easier because the employer is neither responsible for conducting elections, nor is it tasked or authorized to aid the process. The employer ignored the spirit of my directive by unilaterally requisitioning the installation of a postal mailbox, end quote. She also found that Amazon had improperly polled employees by notifying workers at mandatory meetings that they could take vote no items such as pins that were laid out in full view of all of the managers. Such polling, of course, amounts to pressure to take the vote no swag and therefore indicate to their bosses which ways the workers were planning on voting. The union had noted previously that employees who had been incarcerated had felt extra pressure to wear vote no items to work. It is not immediately clear when the new election will happen or what the strategy will be for the next attempt. A statement from RWDSU's Stuart Applebaum read, quote, today's decision confirms what we were saying all along, that Amazon's intimidation and interference prevented workers from having a fair say in whether they wanted a union in their workplace. And as the regional director has indicated, that is both unacceptable and illegal. Amazon workers deserve to have a voice at work, which can only come from a union. The RWDSU charged Amazon with illegal misconduct during the union vote in Bessemer, Alabama. In August, the hearing officer who presided over the case determined that Amazon violated labor law and recommended that the regional director set aside the results of the election and direct a second election. The date and method of the new election are yet to be determined, end quote. Of course, this would all be more impressive if there were any real penalties to employers for breaking the law. But of course, right now, unless we manage to, by some miracle, pass the PRO Act um, or even the parts of the PRO Act that are maybe still in the Build Back Better bill, we are going to see employers continue to realize that the most they will get is a slap on the wrist and in order to do it all over again. So... We will obviously keep you up to date on what's going on there. And Amazon workers, we always want to hear from you. Belabored at
1: dissentmagazine.org. The Burgerville Workers Union just came out with a tentative agreement for their first contract. After more than three years of negotiations, about 100 workers at several outlets of the regional fast food chain... Some of the very few unionized workers in the quick-serve sector are preparing to vote in the agreement. The small but scrappy union stands out in an industry that tends to be extremely hostile to organized labor. There are some unionized workers at fast food outlets that are housed within larger institutions, such as airports, which have broader labor contracts extending across multiple vendors. But the Burgerville union is unique in that it has punched above its weight by staging several strikes in recent years and for being affiliated with the militant industrial workers of the world. If ratified, the new union contract would include a number of improvements that are rare in the food service industry, including paid vacation time, paid parental leave, just cause protections instead of the at-will employment arrangements that allow bosses to essentially fire you without any justification, etc. I spoke with Burgerville worker Mark Medina, who was on the bargaining team, about the deal and how he hopes the union will move forward
4: now. We started organizing the Book of Workers Union back in March of 2015 in its earliest form. We went public uh, at four different locations um, in on April 26th of 2016 and a fifth one two weeks after that. Uh, we carried out a series of escalating actions across the city at different locations and uh, culminating with a, uh, our largest strike at that time in 2018, followed by uh, an election at the 92nd of Powell location, my location, where we won uh, with 82% of the vote. That was followed with four more successful elections. Um, by the time that, we, uh, of, that we've that we signed this contract, we've gone on strike seven times uh, for this first contract, the largest of which was our October 2019 strike. That was four days at four locations. This involved over 100 workers, largest fast food strike in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and that uh, that was uh, particularly important to getting some of these concessions and moving the ball along uh, along the line. Uh, we've been negotiating for roughly three and a half years and um, it's been a lot. Uh, and COVID was a real significant um, impediment, but we were able to move past it. Um, and through the mass layoffs of a, a lot of our membership, we lost, You know, I think uh, pre-COVID we represented about 170 workers as of right now, we represent about 100, but we expect once the stores reopen up in full, that we'll get back to that other number. Um, and right now, we're in the ratification process. We're talking to every member uh, across all of Portland and Gladstone uh, to uh, in- involve them in the process even further and uh, get their opinions on whether they want to um, ratify this agreement or whether they want us to go back to the bargaining table and escalate the campaign, both of which we're fine with.
1: Right. And are you on the bargaining committee?
4: I was. Um, I was elected uh, annually to be on the bargaining uh, committee. Um, me and uh, a couple other people led the negotiations, and uh, I've been there since the beginning. So three and a half years of negotiating.
1: Wow. That is <laughs> that is quite a marathon negotiation process. So can you talk a little
4: bit about what is in this, uh, this agreement that is now going to a vote? Sure. Our most important issues that we want to get across is we... Uh, when talking to membership and we did membership surveys throughout and we engage with the membership throughout the process, uh, to understand what exactly workers were thought, uh, were the most important. Um, one of the things was, uh, another, another aspect of this is that we've effectively been able to negotiate sectorially for the entire company. Uh, and this is a union busting tactic on the part of the company, um, by which to essentially give a lot of the concessions that they give at bargaining to all workers. So as to, um, De-emphasize uh, uh, the need for a union at the non-union shops. It's also a way of writing workers out of their own history at the union shops uh, and putting management in a better light. However, the benefit of that is we get these concessions for not just our membership but all fifteen hundred employees and their families in our communities, which is a benefit as well. So, one of the major, some of the major gains um, we ended at the union shops: uh, at will employment. Um, we have just cause. Uh, shop stewards, elected shop stewards, will be at investigatory and disciplinary hearings. And we have a strong grievance process to defend those workers in those situations. Um, that was a key concern of a lot of people who uh, are afraid of the, um, you know, the, of management acting nefariously or in one way or another unfairly towards them. Uh, we were able to get uh, fair scheduling. As you know, scheduling in uh, the food service, particularly in fast food, is pretty precarious you know uh oregon has uh, a fair scheduling law which allows two weeks out but most employers are less than that and uh, what we have in ours is three months out workers can have a set schedule and repeat that throughout the contract for as long as they need to Uh, and this provides people the ability to have a second job to have uh take care of their kids if they have them to have a life outside of work so they're not always on call for everything and have to have an open availability at all times So long-term set scheduling of three months for workers that want it and for those that want flexibility, they can have that as well. Uh, We were able to get uh, paternity leave and maternity leave. We were able to get a key concern was the ending of E-Verify, which is a system by which um, employers check the documentation status of immigrants. It was a key concern um, equal to any other concern during negotiations So we wanted this to be changed. And for doing so, we not just changed this for our membership, but for all workers of the company. Uh, we're going to be also engaging workers in training on how to defend workers during an ICE raid, uh, which would be one of the first things that we do after this contract is ratified. We are able to get paid time for worker, um, for union orientation by the company. We were able to get changes uh, and increases to um, uh, the, the vacation pay and changes in how it's used. Also holiday pay. We got five paid holidays, uh, time and a half, and one is double time, which is a key concern of workers. Uh, and a multitude of other things uh, down the line that we were able to change in terms of uh, the day-to-day working uh, life of of workers. We were able to increase the the, the wages, but mainly the the, the thing that happened over the summer was we had this major fight over tips, and we wanted uh, uh, the tipping system that the company had instituted previous to this, which was during bargaining, and a major concession on part of the company to the union um, in 2019, uh, was insufficient. Um, for drive-through, and as the pandemic came through, drive-through became the only means by which be, uh, workers could get tips. But it was an inefficient system. It was essentially a bucket. Um, we uh, pushed the company to uh, a, a more um, a more modern system and a more uh, uh, effective system. Uh, the company tested out one of our locations and uh, removed it after a couple of days because the tips were, and this is in their words, were so good that they thought workers were just stealing them. We rallied. We had pickets. We had actions. We had an escalating action. And we had threats of strike, uh, and the company brought it back. And within 30 days of the ratification of this contract, all of our union shops will have this tipping system. With these tips, uh, take-home pay uh, averaged out to between 22 and 25 dollars, and has so since August at the locations where it's been uh, it's been tested out.
1: And so, uh, as you know, there. Um sort of parallel to the Burgerville organizing effort, uh, There have been numerous um, attempts to organize fast food workers. There's been the fight for 15 and there have been various uh, strike actions um, in recent years and, uh, and fairly successful efforts to get the $15 minimum wage instituted um, at the state and local level. As you sort of observe the broader fast food worker organizing movement uh what i guess what advice uh can uh, the revival union impart for um workers at say you know bigger fast food chains um, who are trying to organize
4: yeah our goal from the beginning was always and our, our our view was always that we wanted to light a fire um in this industry so that workers could see that it is possible to change your circumstances. The point of the employer, and, and for example, and how lengthy these negotiations were and all these things were, was to delay and to uh, lower expectations of workers, to take away enthusiasm. And that is their way of demonstrating to workers that they can't do anything. But what we wanted to show was tenacity. Uh, we wanted to show that, yes, you can do these things and it is worthwhile and people will benefit. People, workers who you'll never meet you'll never know, will benefit because of the work that you have done and continue to do, and that's worthwhile to fight. And when I see the kinds of campaigns going on at Starbucks and going on uh, in West Virginia and in other places, I'm incredibly humbled because, you know, when we started, there was, there was none of this. 515 was looking towards, uh, and I was a former member of SCIU, and I have nothing but love and respect for SCIU. Uh, But they were mainly going towards uh, legislatures and pushing minimum wages that way and using this as a sort of stepping stone for their currently existing contracts. What we wanted to do was to actually go to the workplace and actually fight, win these elections, win these contract fights, win these strikes, get these concessions from the employer and make them stick and make them permanent. And I think that we have done that. And I hope that other workers see that, that they can do it too and that we, this is not the end of the story. This is the beginning of, of the second chapter of how we can build a union standard across the industry. Moving forward, I hope that the union standard includes ending uh, the persecution of immigrant, of undocumented immigrant workers. I hope that it ends the ability for employers to believe that they can fire and discriminate against workers at, at will. I want a workplace, an industry that thinks that um, that takes into account people's livelihoods when doing scheduling and that people can have are entitled to long term scheduling. I hope that this is an a industry in the future that has the kinds of benefits and, 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 and work conditions that we're laying down and will lay down in the future. And I'm incredibly humbled to be in this fight with all workers in this industry.
1: That was Mark Medina of the Burgerville Workers Union.
0: The supply chain is in crisis. That seems like it's all we're hearing lately, a constant refrain that comes with little to no explanation of what it actually means. So starting today, we thought we'd dig into it. Unsurprisingly, the thing generally known as the supply chain isn't a thing at all, but an impossibly complex web of workers and technology that stretches around the world. Since we clearly aren't going to explain the whole thing in one episode, consider today's show the first in a series on logistics. Today's guest is Charmaine Chua, an assistant professor at the University of California Santa Barbara's Department of Global Studies and a scholar of, among many other things, global logistic systems. Her first book project, Logistics Leviathan, Circulation, Empire, and the Trans-Pacific Supply Chain, explores the expansion of U.S.-China commercial trade through the rise of logistics and demonstrates how just-in-time global supply chains are imperial infrastructures that accelerate and intensify economies of carceral, ecological, and racialized violence in the U.S., China, and the Asia-Pacific. And we are very excited to have her here today. So to start off very, very broadly, um, I want to unpack a little bit the series of things that are being referred to as the supply chain crisis. So can you sort of start off by telling us what that means as you understand it?
5: Sure. So I think that there is this word that's thrown around a lot in general sort of moments where disruptions happen, and crisis is certainly one of them. But I think unlike something like the 2008 financial crisis, this isn't a crisis um, that necessarily is about, um, you know, serious hindrances or damages to the economy. It's much more about a kind of congestion that is more consumption facing um, at the face of it. Right. So the reason why I think people are calling it a crisis is that they can't get the goods that they want when they want it. I think it's a crisis in all sorts of other ways, but I don't think that that's what people mean when they say the crisis. I think there, there are crises of a number of proportions that are com- coming to roost and coming to become visible through the supply chain. But I think that's an important myth to dispel that the, the sense that this is a crisis is um, assumes that supply chains were functioning perfectly before. So that's <laughs> myth number one. I think, you know, it's important to say that congestion was already growing before this. It's not like the supply chain has ever been a sort of smoothly flowing entity. It's just that some of its interruptions are becoming more visible to us given a kind of bullwhip effect that is coming to hurt um, our immediate sort of ways in which we interact with that supply chain, right, which is in the marketplace in the, in the Ameri- for the average American consumer.
0: You know, one of the things I guess that I sort of want to pull apart is like when we talk about the supply chain, that makes it sound like it's one thing rather than a whole series of global relationships of power and production.
5: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we can begin the story in lots of places, but I'll begin in the 1950s in, in a sort of brief history of why supply chains came to be that the way that they are. Um, In the 1950s, in a moment, and, you know, the 1950s to 60s, in a moment that I think is familiar to many people who think and talk about deindustrialization in the American, um, you know, industrial economy more generally, corporations started to experience a falling rate of profit. So margins were really shrinking. And this was a moment where, you know, I think familiar to many people, um, corporations began to look. To the east and to the global south for cheaper sources of land and labor. That process is known to many of us as outsourcing and offshoring. But I think only until recently have we started to realize the crucial importance of transportation in all of this, mm. because it wouldn't be possible, right, to, um, you know, have your goods made in China and for China to have become the export-oriented industrialized economy that it is and the factory of the world without shipping and transportation becoming fundamentally feasible as a kind of um, way to move goods across the earth more, more efficiently. So in the 1950s and 60s, logistics managers and business gurus started to talk about logistics as um, the, you know, America's dark continent. And that's a direct quote from Peter Drucker, one of these management gurus, right? And so the, the, the kind of colonial logics really start to show themselves but what they you know what they said was that at the time um, logistics cost cost 30 you know up to 30% of all the the total cost of a product. And so in order to experiment with reducing those costs, logistics wasn't just an experiment in just making shipping cheaper, but actually it ex- an experiment in what Deborah Cohen calls stretching the factory across the world, right? Making it so that the entire earth's surface could be tracked and traced and made uh, surveilable as a kind of totalized system in which you could plan for production and shipping and where raw materials come from and different component parts all at the same time through different kinds of algorithmic systems that were rising at the time. So so we're in a place now where just in- time supply chains um, have become the way that um, we come to expect, you know, Uh, assemblies of parts and the way that the um, that commodities come to the market in the first place. Um, They are largely based on incredibly lean forms of supply that, you know, um, you know, rely on semiconductor parts being produced in Taiwan and radios being produced in Malaysia um, and components coming from everywhere so that, you know, you're assembling in one place, but you're assembling from a, a host of different sites. And so, you know, the simple response to why this crisis right now, is that it's uh, it's an effect of this kind of bullwhip effect or butterfly effect in which a single stoppage or or congestion at one point of the um, port or at one point of the production system, um, initially, I think, elicited by COVID shutdowns, has become a kind of manifest problem in all of these areas, right? Yeah. So
0: just before I, we get into the shipping container, which we will have fun with, um, the first place that this kind of showed up during COVID was in personal protective equipment for healthcare workers. And it was striking even at that time that I had been hearing from nurses for years about sort of lean healthcare and just-in-time healthcare and being undersupplied even before COVID. And so, you know, again, I, I, I was Googling doing my research for this interview and came up with an article that was like, how is the supply chain crisis so hard to predict that? I was like, have you ever talked to a worker? (laughs) Because it was, it was so incredibly obvious if you've ever talked to anybody in basically any industry. Cause like I said, I heard it from healthcare workers as much as from manufacturing workers or logistics workers that the system was incredibly fragile and always breaking.
5: Absolutely. And I think that's such a good point, right? That, um, You know, so much of the mainstream media's coverage of the supply chain crisis assumes a kind of consumer, a, a conspicuous middle class American consumer who, like, oh my God, can't get their couch for their interior design firm on time, right? right. But it's really actually, if we think about the American worker, um, this has been visible from the get go. And I think healthcare is one of these really crucial examples to pull out because part of what is so dangerous about the logic of the just in time lean supply chain. Is that it hasn't just sort of affected bottom lines in corporations that produce commodities for purchase, um, in, a, in a sort of in the sense of you know the things that you want to buy at a Target. It's it's also bled into other kinds of industries like healthcare, and part of this has to do with um, you know a, a simple uh, insight about capitalism, which is that it seeks to maximize profits at all times. And healthcare companies, like many others, calculate their profit margins on the basis of, you know, their beds being filled at at 80 to 90% uh, capacity at a time, which meant that when COVID hit, right, they didn't have excess capacity beds. Um, It's built on lean supplies of medical equipment so that you're not um, having buffer stock sit for a time where they gain um, not just dust, but they, they lose profit margins because you've spent money on something that isn't turning over immediately. So the logistical logics, I think, have expanded into all of these places that I think, if you're a worker, you you know and you feel it because you don't have the stuff that you need, right, um, when disasters hit.
0: Right. And... Um... So we're gonna I'm gonna end up going backward up the chain here I think because I'm just like okay well let's, talking about this because we were talking about the um, the Amazon election um, the union election at the Amazon plant in Bessemer being overturned and a new election being declared um, of course like the warehouse and particularly the modern warehouse where goods move incredibly quickly and um, when they call them you know they don't necessarily call them warehouses they call them fulfillment centers or whatever it is. Um, because these are not places where things are stockpiled. These are places where things um, are sort of redirected.
5: Yeah. So I think that the warehouse is a great way to start tracing where the supply chain begins, because the warehouse is probably the last point of contact before that box gets onto a UPS truck and then gets delivered straight to our doorstep. Um, As logistics has become a more and more um, common phenomenon in the U.S., you know, Part of the, the history of offshoring that sort of moved our production to China is that, of course, the jobs that were left in the wake, right, the jobs that were left in the wake of deindustrialization, um, in which we saw rising unemployment, have in some ways been sopped up by the increasing logistics economy. So rather than being primarily an exporting state, we are now importing major amounts of consumer goods. And many of the workers who are now employed in the warehouse sector, and in particular in Amazon warehouses, are from um, the working class in suburban and peri-urban and ex-urban areas where logistics companies have chosen to build warehouses, precisely because that is not only where cheap land is available, but it's also where so-called cheap labor is available, where the working class is, um, you know, looking for jobs in an economy that has largely become gigified and unemployed. So, the warehouse becomes a great way to, to think about this, right? And and I think it's important to just say that the warehouse is the last mile. So the speed and the just in timeness of the supply chain that we, you know are most familiar with at, at the kind of standpoint of the Amazon warehouse is absolutely true, right? Amazon workers are put on intense target hit rates. They are asked to not take breaks. We've heard the famous stories about them having to pee in bottles as Amazon delivery drivers, so on and so forth, in part because last mile is where that, that experience of just in time, the experience of a single day getting your good to you is um, sort of most legible to us. But it's actually, it gets less just in time as we kind of move down the chain. So I know you're talking to Steve Vaselli, and he's gonna talk about truckers and the ways that trucks move those goods inland. Um, But the warehouse has several different types, right? It's got, you've got delivery stations and sortation centers on the one hand, which is in the Amazon network, the kind of smaller distribution centers. Then you've got these massive fulfillment centers where a lot of the goods are stored and then moved outwards. And then you've got, of course, the ports that are moving these goods inland. Um, There, the congestion has been much more visible because um, there are, I I looked this morning and there are at this time 61 ships docked in the port of LA waiting to come alongside, which is the the language for sort of berthing and docking. Um, And those ships, you know, have grown larger and larger and larger over the years. And so as those ships have grown larger, container yardage and space has needed to grow. Um, Wait times in the container yard has continued to grow. And um, the process of sort of, you know, uh, let's say a toy giraffe or a container of agricultural fertilizer coming across um, uh, the U.S. from China actually takes on average, even before the pandemic, anywhere between 38 to 70 days. So it's much less just in time at that point. And I think it's important to then recognize that logistics isn't actually about speed and just in time is in some ways a misnomer it's only applicable at the last mile because it's not so much whether things get here in time but what the chain can predict as a whole, what the supply chain management models are are able to see ahead of time, right? Um, And in that way, I think what we're seeing in terms of this kind of unfolding crisis is the way in which the many cogs in the wheel, the many parts that rely on each other in order for those gears to turn smoothly are getting um, unseated or or dislodged in different kinds of ways because they're interruptions um, that come about from all sorts of unfolding crises across the world.
0: Right. Right. So before we get into any more of those crises, this is the time we're going to talk about the shipping container um, because it really is the key to this whole system. Um, And its institution meant a lot of changes very quickly for a lot of workers around the world. So I wonder if you can talk about sort of the institution of the container through the effect it had on the various workers who come into contact with the containers.
5: Yeah, absolutely. So containerization had been an experiment for many years before it was finally sort of, it finally became the international structure of container shipping. But the first experiment with it was in 1956, when Malcolm McQueen, um, who owned a company called Sealand, which had actually been a trucking company before that point, um, basically came up with a box that was lockable and stackable. And so the container seems like this totally innocuous object, right? But what it actually did was to revolutionize the way that shipping understood labor costs. and. The fundamental, I think, counter-revolutionary effect of the container, I think it's important to say, is that it radically shrunk the amount of labor that was needed at the ports. Um, You know, prior to 1956, uh, this will be familiar to perhaps many listeners, uh, logistics labor were international longshore and warehousing union members who were incredibly powerful, right, at these major choke points of the supply chain. Port, port workers were, in some senses, like the, the kind of face of, of labor, right? Because they, they they were at these kinds of ma- massive global supply chain exchange points. When the container became a kind of uh, infrastructure, it, it, between 1960 to 1980, led to the loss of half of all long-shoring jobs. And this was even in the context, right, of a really strong ILWU union um, inking a mechanization and modernization uh, agreement. Um, we see at the same time in accidents and incidents um, and workers' compensation filings increase by between 63 to 98%. So at the docks, there is this massive kind of way that the container not only allows you to pack and stack goods into a single box that you can then modularize, um, but it also becomes a way to... Reduce the amount of labor. Prior to this moment, longshoremen would haul bananas and cow hides and heavy and smelly things off of boats that were sort of uh, coming in bulk. And after the container, right, um, the the armies of workers that it would take to do that work, many of whom sort of would be in the hundreds, right, to to unload a boat, have become essentially a sort of single, you know, um, crane operator who sits astride those like massive dinosaur cranes, right, just shifting the containers out and in. So, so that I think is the most important thing to understand about the container, that it's not just a box, but its modularity is what has made a kind of entire system have to be adopted. Because not just did the container sort of get rid of jobs at the port, it also became what you know economists and, and transport nerds call intermodal, right? So it's a, it's a form of transport that can be picked up from a ship put onto a truck, move from a truck into a warehouse in a sort of fairly standardized fashion. And what I think becomes really important about the modularity of that structure is that as shipping companies and as warehouses have sought to increase their economies of scale and reduce the kind of costs of transportation, one of the things that they've done is build larger and larger and larger ships. Larger ships mean longer waiting and unloading times. But they also mean massive ecological changes to the ports that they are in. So I, you know, um, as part of my research, went on a container ship for three months in 2014 to 2015. And as we were rolling into the port of Yantian, which is the kind of major port that services Shenzhen, the German captain kind of pointed to the islands that were kind of in the distance, and he said, Those islands used to be what we're seeing here. And he pointed to the flat, massive Yantian port um, that we were looking at. And so, you know, there are, I think, massive infrastructural adaptations that also have to happen in order for um, these larger and larger ships to be able to be received at these ports, which often need to dredge, um, you know, tons of soil, um, build large-scale infrastructure that not only can unload the ship, but also receive them inland. Um, And this has created, I think, all sorts of displacements um, for even regular people who kind of live on the edges of ports as well. Right. Um, So
0: you mentioned spending time on a container ship. And of course, we have to ask you about that and something about the work of being on one of these massive ships. Again, I think everybody sort of was struck by it during the Ever Given crisis and and learned some things about people like being stuck on these ships for long periods of time and things like that. But um, what's the day-to-day work like if you are a seafarer on one of these massive, massive ships?
5: I love that you asked this question. Um, (laughs) It's my favorite thing to talk about. So, you know, part of my fieldwork was on a ship and I took on day jobs uh, at the at the permission of the captain. So I, you know, donned my one, my jumpsuit and put on steel-toed boots and, and went to work. And so I got a, a sense of kind of the, the everyday life of these container ship workers. Um, I'll start with the structure and then I'll talk a little bit about their everyday life. So the thing that I think becomes really interesting about the container ship is that You know, Rose George calls it a floating piece of the nation state. And that is indeed Mm. true. They have become so kind of um, deregulated and, um, you know, spread across multiple contracts that where seafarers are concerned, you've got, you know, um, I'll give you just the example of the ship I was on. It was a Taiwanese evergreen chartered ship, which means it brought evergreen containers. And that was the shipper. It was owned and built by it was owned by a, a company in Germany. It was built in the South Korean shipyard. Its um, HR team contracts the kind of um, shipping officers from the, the company that owns the ship itself. So those were German and Russian. And then the majority of those um, workers were Filipino. And those jobs are subcontracted out to another manning agency, of which there are, you know, over hundreds of thousands in in Philippines, which is one of the major seafaring countries. And part of what happens when you have multiple contracts on the ship is that those workers also become beholden to different kinds of contracts. Um, The Filipino seafarers are slated to work on board for a a maximum of of six plus or minus one months. Whereas the uh, European captains, because they're beholden to European labor law, only work for three months. Europeans get you know, paid leave. Uh, Filipino seafarers do not. So there's already, I think, this kind of like radical, uh, radically different and, and uneven structure of the, the wage on the ship itself. And then in terms of the, you know, the everyday labor, it's actually really, really boring work. So the thing that seafarers would characterize most of the time when I ask them sort of like, how do you understand your own relationship to the global supply chain is they would say, yeah, sure. I move the world's goods, but this job is 100% boring. And um, one of the, you know, one of the, the metaphors they would often use is that the ship is like a floating Alcatraz. It's like a prison and they experience that work. You know, it's monotonous and it's boring. You are largely on the ship. Um, Scrubbing the, scrubbing the deck, um, you know, wiping down things. If you're working above board, um, some workers also do things like monitor reefer containers. So that's sort of checking the um, temperature of reefers that are refrigerated containers that might hold things like apples or bananas or um, frozen fish. Um, or you're literally just spraying and scrubbing rust and then repainting in this kind of like continuous attempt to maintain the life of the ship. If you're working uh, in the engine, which is a sort of different crew, um, a lot of that work is about um, maintaining the engine itself, monitoring the speed at which the ship goes, um, fabricating machine parts. On one of the days, you know, um, I was using a kind of high pressure water sprayer to spray off the kind of refrigerated units. Um, On another day, we actually had to crawl into this crawl space to scoop up um, gallons of oil that had leaked. So it's, it's monotonous work um but it's also dangerous work because a lot of this work is sort of you know you're you're on a ship in the middle of the ocean and um accidents have been known to happen there are massive storms uh, there are also sort of the everyday sort of menaces of of regular regular you know working class work
0: right and then of course you had covid and and people i i think in the your boston review piece i read something about like hundreds of thousands of workers just being stuck on ships that couldn't dock or any number of other various ways that people got stuck during this.
5: Yeah. So currently there are nearly 450,000 crew members stuck on ships around the world. And because of COVID restrictions, many of these ports will not let them get off to go home, right? So not only can you not get off for shore leave. Um so if you're let's say on a 6-month contract and you've docked in the US, you can't get off the ship just to get some fresh air and put your feet on the ground. Um, but also, you know, people who have uh, different kinds of crises are not a, not allowed to get off the ship and go home. So, you know, I mean, even in regular times, right, um, one crew member's mom died when I was on the ship, and the shipping company wouldn't let him go home and end his contract early. So he had to, you know, his family had to bury his mom without him there. And that I think is like normal right it's normal that crew members who are on these ships become i think like expected to subject themselves to these conditions of um these feelings of incarceration this feeling of being literally containerized themselves um, as the cost of making these goods move round and around the world so again right we come back to the myth of the just in time it's very much time moves very much slowly and painfully for the people who actually move these goods I love the way you put it, that they literally
0: are containerized themselves. That's such a telling story, isn't it? And of course, who is doing the work and which people get to do the slightly more glamorous work of being in charge. Although I guess it probably wasn't that glamorous when you were stuck in the Suez Canal, but you know, (laughs) Um, yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to ask um, also about, because you were talking about all these layers of ownership and nationality that are happening on this ship. um, I wanted to ask about flags of convenience, because this is something that is fascinating to me. Um, And also, again, like it's a, a offshore process of offshoring.
5: I mean, I don't know how to describe it, but. Yes, absolutely. What flags of convenience essentially are is that they allow you to declare your ship as um, belonging to a different country than the one in which it was built and the one in which it's managed simply by way of a different address um, and a kind of different postal code. So you need to only show some, some sort of bare way in which you have sort of legitimate business in a country elsewhere. And that allows you to sort of link your ship to that flag. Um, The majority of flag of convenience countries are countries that are historically client states of the U.S. So um, Liberia is one. um, Singapore is another. And over the years, what the flag of convenience essentially does is that for countries that have, you know, been through decades of colonization, who had to face the question, as many decolonizing countries did, of what it would look like to industrialize or develop in the aftermath, Flags of convenience were one way of inviting foreign investment into these zones, so they weren't receiving factories, but they were receiving shipping company offices and locations that essentially then allow these companies to um, deregulate the kinds of labor laws that they would have otherwise been held to in their own country. On the ship that I was on, which was initially German-owned, when I was on the ship, it was in the process of flagging out. It was process of flagging out to Liberia, in fact. And that process was a very real thing for the workers, right? It actually meant that all of the German workers who had been employed on that ship or in that company for over 20 years were being faced with job losses um, and being asked to leave that company. And so that's what the you know the real effects of flags of convenience are. Um they are ways to sidestep taxes, they're ways to find ways to sidestep regulation, and most of all they are a way to pay your crew members less.
2: Yeah,
0: it's it's so interesting to me, right? Because it, as these things are sort of these giant moving monstrosities, um the same processes that we think about happening, um, either, you know, literally the factory moving, or also, you know, I think of like Google having a headquarters in Ireland so that it can, you know, do little tax dodging maneuver. Um, and all of these things are, are happening also with ships, but in, um, it's just much easier for them to switch, right? You don't have to do anything to the ship. You just have to pay your fees to get the flag from somewhere
5: else, I guess. Yeah, the shipping industry is this really interesting puzzle, right? Because you're not putting down uh, heavy fixed capital costs into building a really expensive factory somewhere. You are building these large ships that also are relatively mobile. And what that essentially means is that, you know, things that look like offshoring and are easier to understand as forms of capitalist expansion. Um much harder to understand with shipping, right? Because all it happens, all that happens, is you get a different country name slapped onto the back of your ship. But actually, what that country name does is it essentially offshores your ship. Um, and and I think over time, that has also meant that many of these shipping companies, you know, consolidate, um, become I think more more mobile and are able to sort of pitch pit themselves against ports and um, get court, ports to compete with each other on the basis of mm. the kinds of um, business that they can invite. Um, when these ships kind of increasingly build themselves um, to be larger and larger, and consolidate um, the the industry more generally.
0: Right. So, yeah, because the other than the places where the things are actually being made, it's you can change where you offload them. Right. Like Felixstowe is now the big port in. The UK, which nobody had heard of until fairly recently, as opposed to London or something, right?
5: Yeah. And, you know, even in the US, um, we are seeing this kind of um, battle of the ports, which is literally the language that I think New Jersey used and that um, my colleague Martin Daniluk writes about. Um, that was sort of elicited because of the Panama Canal. But you get these increasingly Uh, complex kind of ways in which uh, capitalists imagine that they can literally engineer the earth, right, to serve the needs of these capital flows. And so you get a Panama Canal or a Suez Canal that requires these monstrous acts, right, of shifting the earth to receive these larger and larger ships. And, you know, LA Long Beach used to receive about 50% of all of the US imports. And now that's down to, I believe, about 33 to 36%. And a lot of that loss has come from competition from other ports um, in Houston or in Charleston that see themselves as sort of being able to to receive and compete with these kinds of trans-Pacific traffic. Um, and that's because shipping is so much more mobile than other places that actually what they do is they are the mobile ones, right? And then they demand a kind of fixity um, in terms of the infrastructural adaptations that all of these ports have to do in order to be able to receive these ships.
0: Right, right. So, I want to get off the ship for just a second and talk about um, the end destination of a lot of these, which is a lot of the manufacturing is still being done in China. Um, And yeah. And so I want to sort of pull that back into this conversation about, again, noting that just in time is kind of a misnomer because suddenly things are not being made at a factory down the street. They're being made at a factory across the world. Um, And yet we associate manufacturing in China with, faster speed and access to more commodities than ever.
5: Absolutely. Yeah, so you know, one of the things that I think I'm hearing about China right now is that um a lot of the lights out factories, the ones that are sort of run by robots are, are working over time, but so too are factories asking workers to show up um and to and to work night shifts in order to sort of keep production moving. Um, but you know, one of the one of the instances in which this really starts to affect workers in China, in Thailand, and in Indonesia, is that a lot of these countries that are recovering from the COVID pandemic are also, you know, export-oriented industrialized countries who rely on a steady stream of exports that are consumed by the U.S. in order to um, grow their economies and, and sustain a, a GDP. And what a number of them have started in terms of initiatives is, um, for example, in Thailand, a project called Factory Sandbox, which is a telling, once again, kind of logistical metaphor. And what they're doing is asking workers basically to show up at the factories, many of whom sort of come from rural areas, show up at the factories, sleep in tents um, or bamboo mats on the ground and not go home as a way to try to contain the spread of the pandemic. So factories are literally also, again, right, using logistical kind of warehousing logics to actually warehouse workers.
0: Mm. Yeah. So once again, the workers themselves are being containerized. That's so interesting. Um, it's also horrifying. Um, and I mean, we already, you know, are, I, I think a lot of our listeners at least will be familiar of the stories about, um, I guess we're a few years out from like the Foxconn panic where there was a whole rash of stories about how horrifying it was to work in the Foxconn factory. Um, but, you know, of these massive mega factories with dorms and everything connected to them um, that end up becoming, you know, company town 3.0 or whatever it is.
5: Yeah, you know, I find it so interesting that we only think about Chinese workers when something really outrageous and horrible happens, right? Like, Mm -hmm. we started talking about Foxconn because workers were committing suicide. We talk about Chinese workers when, you know, a handwritten note somehow surfaces in some, like, Halloween package, right, that a a kid receives in in the U.S. But I think the, the things you were pointing to, the everyday mundaneness of how normalized it is, that many of these industries actually create, um, you know, company towns and zones where workers just can't leave their jobs is absolutely normalized, right? And the the banality of that evil, in a sense, is, is I think, really noteworthy, because Foxconn may not have as many workers taking, you know, committing suicides, but they still have the same massive complexes in which You know, lots of rural migrant workers come in, they're put on different schedules, they're held to a kind of uh, rotating dorm situation in which you never really meet workers over time. So the ability to organize becomes kind of decimated by the fact of like high turnovers. Um, All of this, right, all of this is happening and and continues to happen in a way that doesn't just doesn't surface in the news. Right.
0: Right. And it it also is it often gets exoticized in this way. It's like, Ooh, this, the the horrible things that are happening in China. And it's like, well, this is just the same logic that, you know, used to happen in Lowell, Massachusetts where the, you know, workers also lived in dorms and, uh, were supervised by, you know, company owned employees and all of that. Like this isn't new. It's just somewhere else that we can sort of point to and go, Ooh,
5: ooh, it's bad. (laughs) Yeah. These are old stories that are just, you know, uh, following roller skates around the world as capital expands around the world. Totally. Right, And so
0: COVID obviously is the thing that is causing um, the multiple overlapping problems that are leading up to this thing we're calling a supply chain crisis. When we talk about these things now, they're sort of curiously detached from the fact that all of these systems run on humans who get sick. (laughs) And so, yes, yeah, so I wanted to sort of talk about like very early on, right, when the virus first got identified, it was in China and the early lockdown protocols there obviously had an effect on who was working when and where.
5: Totally. Yeah. So um, there were major lockdowns in the port of Shenzhen in June. Um, a number of factories closed and stopped production because COVID had hit so heavily. Um yeah. So, it's, you know, I think you're, you're absolutely right. I think this is visible, not just in China, but in the U S as well, where, uh, there were temporary interruptions to, um, work because of the pandemic and it was a labor crisis. And then, uh, the deaths of workers who move our goods around the world became totally normalized. Right. So like, Amazon started, you know, it raised its minimum wage to sixteen dollars an hour. Wow, one dollar more. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, but then they they you know didn't take particular COVID safety precautions. Um, they took off the kind of target hit rates for a while, but then they 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 expected them right right all over again, right? And it was really the work of Amazon workers who organized when people would get infected and. The warehouses in Amazon didn't want to shut them down. It was workers walking out and demanding sick outs and demanding that you know they close the warehouses for a day that forced Amazon to take action. But I, mean, I think across across you know a number of sites, and I think China's is particularly interesting one because a lot of strikes that have happened of late have been boundary spanning strikes that have been in the transport and, and regional sector. So um, that's actually one of the places where logistics workers have been at the forefront of, of mobilizing, um, across a lot of these places, right? It's been workers insisting on better safety measures that have actually forced companies to, to alter their
2: practices.
0: Right. Um, yes. And the way that that has played out, um, now, of course, I mean, you know, we're also in the middle of inflation panic and all of these other panics about like, you know, oh, my God, working people might actually assert that they have some rights. And therefore, we have to freak out about yeah. everything. Um, but, yeah, what we see is also just I'm, I'm just continually shocked by how, as you say, like the deaths have been just totally normalized. Um, and we are back to essentially complaining that we can't get a rubber chicken on time. Uh, And I remember one of those early Amazon walkouts, one of the workers just talking about like, you know, some of the stuff that he was packing in this warehouse. And he was like, you know, look, he's like, I'm fine with coming in and getting people things that are necessary, but you don't need a rubber chicken right now.
5: (laughs) Nothing says more about the futility of capitalism than like workers being forced to work during a deathly pandemic, packing rubber chickens. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> it's just like,
0: what do you need? And yeah. And so it's it's interesting because of course then we get back around to this conversation that's that gets um also weirdly moralized, right? Which is like we just need to stop shopping and that will solve the problem. Um and yeah, so I, I think there's there are just so many ways around talking about capitalism, I think, in these moments.
5: Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know where to begin, right, with like the mainstream kind of featuring of the supply chain crisis, because there are so many ways that they talk in fine grain detail about how these just in time supply chains, you know, um, are incredibly lean and there are these bullwhip effects. And then what's the conclusion? The conclusion is either blame the consumer, tell them not to buy as much, uh, blame the workers who are lazy. Right. Um, suggest that, well, I guess the conclusion is you should buy your Christmas presents early, which is, I think, the number one conclusion I've seen from these <laughs> supply chain crisis stories. Yeah, it, right? it really or is. Or like buy, buy two pairs of shoe instead of one. Um, or it, it becomes a story about how uh, regular small business owners are not able to get the products that they need. Right. So I like, can we take a second to talk about that particular miss or that particular kind yeah, of
0: absolutely. narrative?
5: It's always the small
0: business owner because America's really obsessed with small business owners. And it was the same thing with the nobody wants to work anymore stuff, right? Like Completely. you find somebody stumbles on a small business owner and that becomes the person through which you tell the story. Um, because a small business owner is sort of always predisposed to be already good.
5: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I I think like it's important to recognize that yes, this supply chain crisis is hurting regular people. For regular working people who live paycheck to paycheck, the difference of $10 in the cost of a grocery bill bill because food prices are rising or the doubling of your production prices for like a working artist can be really disastrous, right? We hear stories of like small business owners having to close shop, Um, but that that, that immediate immediate urgency that is felt, um, and that is real and painful for working class and poor people, always gets leveraged into this conclusion that what we need to do is to bring everything back to normalcy. And right. by normalcy, we really mean the norm of capitalist growth. I mean, the economy has been growing by 3% every year. That's a, like a doubling of the economy, right? Every every 10 to 20 years. And from the perspective of ecological sustainability, from the perspective of you know any anything else, right? That's absolutely insane. So I, I really feel like the story we need to tell and what we need to be asking is why we live in societies that have such a radical dependence on the market and why we need to depend on this kind of constant and expanding cycle of commodities in order to provide for everyone, right? Like it shouldn't be that an Amazon worker has to unpack rubber chickens in order to feed his family. It shouldn't be that, you know, we need to like, I don't know, like have people who do drop shipping in order to afford healthcare. And so I think over the years, there's this like persistent line over and over again, right, that a broken supply chain hurts jobs or longshore workers disrupting the supply chain hurts jobs or like, you know, boycotts of ports in solidarity with Palestine hurts jobs, right, becomes a way to buttress a system that is built on lean everything for everyone, and these like massive fat profits for major corporations that rely on these kinds of thinness everywhere else in order to, you know, get returns on on equity for their shareholders. So that I feel like is the story we need to, to tell, right? And, and the kind of conversation we need to ask about the supply chain crisis isn't just how do we get things back to where they were, but what was broken in the first place? Right. Yeah.
0: I can't tell you how many people have asked me in the last year um, since my book came out about like, what about when we go back to normal? And I just usually start laughing because I don't, I don't know that anybody that. knows that we've got a climate crisis looming. Um, and I did actually want to ask about that. So maybe this is just the point to do it where, um, because as you were talking about sort of the creating of these ports and the dredging and the changing, and I am sitting in New Orleans right now. So I am in a place that would only exist if, you know, because of dredging and, and building of levees and things. Um, and yeah, what does all of this do to a system that is already getting worse? And like what, you know, I've, I've seen the story is about the, you know, sort of horrific projections of like, ooh, when the Arctic melts, we can just send ships that way. Oh my God,
5: <laughs> completely. I think what often happens when people focus on shipping as only sort of one part of the massive um, global supply chain is that, especially when it comes to environmental costs, is that people say, oh, shipping contributes to just 3% of all total carbon emissions. Um, That's true if you're looking just at ships, but if we see ships as just one node and as a condition of possibility for the entire uh, sphere of global capitalism to be made possible in the first place, right? If we see them as the fundamental thing that allowed people to offshore capital to cheaper regions in order to extract raw materials and and to to treat the earth as as a space of exploitation and expropriation and dispossession, we see that ships are actually much more than just the sort of immediate thing that they contribute. And so if you widen out to the larger picture, one of the things that ships create is a kind of knock-on effect in ports where, as I was talking about earlier, the larger your ships grow, the more these companies basically expect ports to make these invasive and extractive ecological adjustments to raise bridges, increase container sizes, right? Produce the steel that makes these ships, create the kinds of um, logistics related pollution in lands that sort of brings your trucks into um, the community. In LA, for example, shipping related emissions and all of the other jobs that emanate from there contribute to more than 40% of all LA traffic. It's not actually drivers, right? So I think like that's one piece of it that in the immediate sphere of the the massive expansion and monstrosity of these ships, um, it causes all of these knock-on effects. But I think there's another way to think about how COVID- and flooding and typhoons all happen to happen at the same time. Mm -hmm. I think that some people want to talk about it like it was just this like contingent, you know, coming together of disaster, as if disasters aren't coming together more often now for a particular reason. Right. So there's like I mean, you know, there's a Chinese energy crisis. And why was that? It's because there's been flooding across Chinese China's key coal producing provinces. There's been, you know, uh, extreme market distortions. There have been intense weather events globally around the world that have led to production slowdowns, right? Um, And so I think all of this has to be understood as part and parcel of this conversation. And not, not least of which is to say that you can see, you know, zoonotic outbreaks and COVID as one of the consequences of increasing deforestation and factory farming and our reliance on these mass industrialization of agricultural products. So all of this I think is coming to a head in a way that really forces us not to just look at sort of like what do we do about the supply chain? Do we deglobalize? Do we create more buffer stock? Um, that's really just I think missing the forest for the trees, right? We're in a moment where um, what, we, what we expect and when we say we wanna go back to normal is more growth. And I think we have to have a different conversation about
0: that. We maybe don't need rubber chickens anymore. Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wanted to note too, one thing is in when you were talking about the Chinese energy crisis is in some of these articles that are sort of the like, you know, supply chain crisis explained, they're like, well, China's rapidly turning away from coal. And it's written as though this is just like a choice that they are making because they're deciding to be green, which like great and also definitely necessary. But it again has the same effect of blaming environmental regulations for you not being able to get your stuff.
5: Yep. Yep, absolutely. And I think China is itself experiencing all sorts of contradictions, their own falling rate of profit, their own challenge of sort of dealing with um, certain problems with, you know, a rising middle class and and making an effort to sort of create what Xi Jinping calls dual circulation, um, which is sort of, you know, being able to both appeal to a Chinese middle-class consuming Population as well as exporting at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not just the US, right? We're starting to see this all over the world. So um, we could keep talking
0: about labor and production in China for another whole episode, um, and maybe we will. But um, mm-hmm. the last thing I wanted to ask you is in your piece about the Ever Given and your review of two books about shipping, you wrote about the trouble with disrupting this system because it's built to reroute value around stoppages and disruptions, as you write. Mm -hmm. Um, And so knowing that even as it is obviously disrupted in some ways right now, it is also a really hard system to disrupt, um, how do we think about worker organizing on the supply chain um, and are there places that it's happening that our listeners should know about
5: Oh, Sarah, this is the million-dollar question. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) So I think, you know, one of the things that we really need to take seriously is that supply chain models, which are not just in the ports and in the warehouses, but almost everywhere these days, are intensely planned for disruption and risk. And how they often understand disruption and risk is that it's all horizontal, right? Uh, labor stoppages, climate calamity, uh, you know, different kinds of like shortages and truck chassis. These are all sort of like inputs in a model that they're Mm -hmm. trying to map and, and understand in terms of how to value and predict possible stoppages to the supply chain at any one time. And I think one of the things that has become really obvious about this supply chain crisis is that the companies that are benefiting are the shipping companies, right? The three major alliances have made record profits, more profits than they've ever made, uh, you know, like something like 14 times the profit um, that they did in 2014 or 2019. So, you know, there's a way in which um, stoppage actually benefits the companies that have consolidation and control over some of the price signaling and the costs of freight in in the industry. And so when you think about this is a long way of getting to the question of like, well, what about disruption? And I guess I want to say that what I think is really important to recognize is not that like we shouldn't be disrupting things, but that labor stoppages have to also, I think, think about the, um, their, their interconnection within a supply chain network as a whole and what that means for stoppages at any one point in the chain. So I think that you know if we were to go back to Bessemer, which we were talking about earlier, right? Bessemer is just one node in this massive Amazon network. And so if you unionize that one space, right, and that space becomes more possible as a space for protected concerted activity, you know, Amazon can reroute around it very easily, which indeed they have done. Because in Germany, where Amazon workers are unionized, Amazon has built Poland's largest fulfillment center to serve which population? Not the Polish, right? It serves the German market. As a way to reroute around national borders, so all of that is to say that I think you know we can look to the ways that workers have been thinking about this. Um, the German-Polish workers have started to organize together. The German workers supported a Polish bid for unionization. Um, you know they have tried to coordinate shutdowns across um, these spaces. And likewise, as I sort of had mentioned in China, one of the few places where there are regional strikes has been in the transportation sector. Mm-hmm. Yeah
0: what you mean workers of the world unite wasn't just a nice suggestion
5: (laughs) like literally physically across the supply chain yeah yeah it's it's
0: it's funny i think it's doug henwood who jokes that vulgar marxism explains like 98 percent of the world but still Um, (laughs) but yeah so is there anything else before i let you go because i have kept you for a whole hour um, that you really think we need to add in here
2: You
5: know, I I probably sort of like didn't hit it when we were talking about growth, but I do think that if we zoom out and we draw conclusions that may be scarier because they demand massive and fundamental changes, we see that what the supply chain crisis presents us is just like another lens onto the ways in which the economy isn't working as it's currently constituted. And I think one of the things that, you know, personally, I would say becomes really critical that we ask about is our dependence on the market and our dependence on uh, supply chains as a kind of indicator of growth. Um, I think here we can look at, you know, people and movements like with Georges Collis and Jason Pickle and people who are making a, 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 an argument and a call for a mass demand for degrowth, not just a Green New Deal, but like the possibility of asking how caring economies otherwise might work right and i think this is something that your book talks about as well i think refocusing our energy on sort of asking not just sort of why do we radically depend on the market to get us the things we need but also like what would it look like if work was something that we didn't have to depend on in order to survive
0: you're listening to belabored a descent magazine podcast Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org.
1: And that was Charmaine Chua, Assistant Professor of Global Studies at UC Santa Barbara. And now it's time for ARG! I wish I'd written that. In which we talk about the pieces that we read and liked, but did not write. My pick for ARG is... Why Do We Need a 24-7 Economy? by Rebecca Gordon in Tom Dispatch. As the holiday shopping season revs up, have you noticed that prices are rising and sometimes the stuff you want to buy is out of stock? Temporary shortages of goods, like toys and patio furniture, are linked to bottlenecks at critical logistical points, such as ports. So the Biden administration has recently directed dock workers at one of the nation's biggest ports to extend their workday. Workers at the Port of Los Angeles will now be on duty 24 hours a day. The Port of Long Beach has already been doing so since September. This is supposedly aimed at helping to tamp down inflation and to sate the nation's seemingly boundless appetite for the latest fashion, kitchen gadgets, and trendy children's toys. From a worker's perspective, though, it seems like the holiday shopping rush must be fueled at the expense of those who toil daily to keep those retail shelves stocked even though, for the most part, these are not essential goods. They're just things that Americans want to buy really badly. Gordon writes, quote, I'm relieved to know that dock workers will now be laboring through the night at the command of the President of the United States to guarantee that my needs are met. To be sure, shortages of at least somewhat important items are indeed rising, including disposable diapers and the aluminum necessary for packaging some pharmaceuticals. Still, a major focus in the media has been on the specter of, quote, slim pickings this Christmas and Hanukkah, unquote. She also points out the political motive behind this measure. Quote, Joe Biden and the rest of the Democrats know one thing. If it looks like they're doing nothing to bring prices down, there will be hell to pay at the polls in 2022. And so it's the night shift for dock workers and others in Los Angeles, Long Beach, and possibly other American ports, unquote. So it's about the politics of inflation and the desire for nonstop shopping that's making two ports of California the sacrifice zones for the carnal appetites of the American consumer. The dysfunction of the logistics system and the bottlenecks in the supply chain reflect a deeper malaise in our economy. This kind of work is simply unsustainable. In Gordon's view, the fact that more and more workers are realizing the unsustainable nature of their jobs is driving a spike in the rate of job quitting in recent months, with over 4 million workers, or 3% of workers, ditching their workplaces in September alone. Gordon writes, quote, for the first time in many decades, workers are in the driver's seat. They can command higher wages and demand better working conditions, and that's exactly what they're doing at workplaces, ranging from agricultural equipment manufacturer John Deere to breakfast cereal makers Kellogg and Nabisco. I've been witnessing it in my personal labor niche, part-time university faculty members, of which I am one, unquote. As a fellow precariously employed academic myself... I certainly see the recent uptick in strike actions as heartening. And to some extent, the quit rate might reflect something promising as well, as workers appear to be voting with their feet and leaving bad jobs to presumably seek better jobs elsewhere. But a spike in the rate of people leaving their jobs might also reflect desperation. The highest quit rates were in arts, entertainment, and recreation, service sectors, and government jobs, occupations that are often public-facing and require dealing with enormous amounts of stress. Many of these workers may have simply been pushed out by the everyday physical and emotional stress of their jobs, as well as the traumas of working through a pandemic. Still, Gordon believes that the high demand and relatively low supply of workers in some key sectors, like the ports, should be exploited by the labor movement. She writes, quote, in addition to demanding higher pay, better conditions, and an end to two-tier compensation systems, workers are now in a position to re-examine and in many cases reject the shift work system itself, and they have good reason to do so. Shift work, particularly the night shift or graveyard shift, is regarded as a basic component of industrial capitalism. It is basically a way of maximizing your labor force by constantly churning workers on the assembly line. Gordon recalls her experience working the graveyard shift at an ice cream cone factory. Quote, "...health regulations made it illegal to drink water on the line, and management was too cheap to buy screens for windows, which remained shut even when it was more than 100 degrees outside." Unquote. She writes later on that, quote, "...management there started messing with my shifts, assigning me to all three in the same week." As you might imagine, I wasn't sleeping a whole lot and would occasionally resort to those little white pills immortalized in the trucker's song, Six Days on the Road, The memory of popping pills to stay awake resonates eerily today, as more and more working-class people find themselves sliding into dependency on prescription painkillers, a new kind of magic pill that can dull the pain caused by day after day of relentless, monotonous toil. Given the scientific evidence that night shift workers are more vulnerable to various health problems, including heart disease, metabolic disorders, and type 2 diabetes, Gordon proposes that an elimination of the night shift would be an important public health measure. Quote, perhaps the pandemic with its kinky supply chain has given us an opportunity to rethink which goods are so critical that we're willing to let other people risk their lives to provide them for us, unquote she hits at the odd paradox of work amid the pandemic. While many workers have received public praise for performing so-called essential jobs in healthcare or government or food services, we've also seen that being deemed essential hasn't really protected workers from being exploited. In fact, it's made it easier in some ways. On an individual level, millions of workers are making the calculation that they simply don't need the hardship that their job entails, and they're walking away. As a society... Maybe we ought to question whether we really need so much work to be done 24 hours a day, just to keep consumers happy.
0: Inflation. Scary, scary inflation. Other than supply chain crises and the Great Resignation, inflation is all we hear about lately, or really kind of any time in America when wages have gone up. But there's just one problem. The narrative is a lie. Inflation, of course, doesn't count when it's housing prices or the cost of a college degree, both of which have skyrocketed well past the rate of wage increases, even if you count those teeny increases we've seen lately in wages. But more importantly, as the authors of my ARG choice for this week note, employers' complaints about rising labor costs are belied by their even faster rising profits. The piece is titled, Fattest Profits Since 1950, Debunk Wage Inflation Story of CEOs. And it is by Matthew Bosler, Joe Doe, and Katya Dmitrieva at that noted communist rag, Bloomberg, with assistance from our former co-host, Josh Idelson. They write, quote, in the second year of a pandemic that began by wiping out 20 million jobs, American workers are doing surprisingly well. It's just that American business is doing even better, end quote. U.S. businesses are posting their largest profit margin since 1950, and those profits are up 37% from the previous year. The authors note, quote, businesses have been paying out more cash to their employees, too, with total compensation up 12% in the last quarter from a year earlier. That's partly because millions of Americans went back to work, but also because many got a raise when they did so. Hourly earnings broadly kept up with the fast-rising cost of living, and in some low-pay industries like leisure and hospitality, they comfortably outpaced it. Viewed that way, it looks like everyone's coming out ahead, and so much for the great zero-sum struggle between labor and capital. At Deere & Company, for example, the tractor-maker that's seen the highest-profile strike of the pandemic, workers held out to get a 10% raise, yet the company is still expected to earn even more next year than the record profit it posted Wednesday end quote. But of course, they note those John Deere workers are in a union, making them, unfortunately, part of the minority in the U.S., and it's not clear that the good conditions for workers will continue or that smaller businesses can keep up with the big guys. But at the moment, despite companies whining about increased wages, the article notes, the data suggests that, quote, business can comfortably pass on all its higher costs, which means there may be more inflationary pressure to come, end quote. Those consumer prices are already up 6.2%, but as the article notes, that is going to profit as much or more as it is going to wage hikes. The authors note, quote, the president has promised higher wages. He's under pressure to rein in high prices. He hasn't said a whole lot about high profits, the third leg of that stool, but Biden did call out companies in one politically sensitive industry, gasoline. Wholesale prices actually fell in recent weeks, but the price at the pump hasn't budged a penny, the president said November 23rd. If that margin had held in line with historical norms, Americans would be paying at least 25 cents less per gallon right now as I speak. Instead, companies are pocketing the difference as profit. That's unacceptable, end quote. Biden will be under pressure to rein in prices, but the question will be whether he wants to act in workers' interests or their bosses. The article notes, after sinking to the lowest levels in decades following the 2008 crisis, labor's share of national income began to pick up again in recent years amid historically low borrowing costs, end quote. But the story isn't, the article notes, just about macroeconomic policy or the Federal Reserve's interest rates. It's also a story about workers taking action and telling the truth about high profits really matters there. When workers like those at John Deere know that their bosses are making money, they're more likely to hold out for a bigger slice. As the article notes, quote, Employees went on strike in October, the busiest time of the year for the company's customer base on America's farms. They turned down one deal that management and union leaders had agreed to. Then they turned down a second, significantly better one. The company was showing signs of panic, asking software engineers to fill in on factory lines. Workers may be tired of seeing the fruits of their labor go to corporations making record-breaking earnings, Chris Romberg, a professor of sociology at Fordham University, said at that point. The deer workers evidently felt the company could afford more. Just a few days later, they were proven right. That's all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for our year-end special episode, which will be live virtually, of course, with some extra special guests on the evening of December 16th. Keep tuned to the Descent website, dissentmagazine.org, and follow at dissentmag and hashtag belabored on Twitter to keep up. Thanks, as always, go to the folks at Descent for hosting us, to Natasha Lewis and to now Colin Kinneborough for editing us, and more importantly, to you for listening to us, sharing us with your friends and coworkers, tweeting and talking about us, writing to us, and sharing your stories with us. We would especially appreciate if it's coming up to the end of the year and you feel like doing something nice for your favorite podcast hosts. You can rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us to find new listeners. And of course, Special thanks to all of you who have been sustaining members of the podcast for what feels like a million years now at the Dissent website, dissentmagazine.org slash belabored, or on our Patreon page over at patreon.com slash belabored. We still understand that if you don't have the spare cash right now, and we want to continue to be able to make every episode of this free to listen to And that means that if you have some extra cash, if, you know, you got some of those 12% raises we were just discussing, um, and you could kick some of it our way, that really helps us to do things like host in-depth conversations about just what is a supply chain, talk to workers who are organizing around the world, and so much more. And, you know, we've got some cool rewards over on the Patreon page just in case you needed more temptation. You can always find out more on the Descent website, org slash belabored. If you want to share your story of working or striking under coronavirus, you can, as always, email us at belabored at org. If you are an Amazon worker or a truck driver, warehouse worker or grocery store clerk or a nurse or a fast food worker, we want to hear from you. You can tweet at us too at hashtag belabored. Thanks again for listening. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.